Go ahead and find Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're, uh, this is our second week through the Sermon on the Mount. So Sermon on the Mount part 2. Um, we're really getting into the meat of what Jesus has for his followers. Uh, we've gone through the Beatitudes. We've gone through these two huge metaphors of salt and light. Jesus is sitting on this hillside teaching a, a multitude of people um, and we're going to see this theme over and over again. We saw it a little bit in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to see it all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is someone who teaches with authority. He teaches with authority. He's able to communicate in such a way that people believe him and, and take his word as true. He isn't just interpreting things like the scribes and Pharisees. He isn't just repeating things like the scribes and Pharisees. He's teaching with authority. He has authority on his own. This morning, we'll move through seven smaller sections of Scripture from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. The first, though, the first of the seven is key. And the following six passages will be kind of some examples of that first. That'll make sense in just a bit. Remember, though, that Jesus has the kingdom of heaven in mind when he's preaching on this hillside. So all that we're about to hear is wrapped up in the idea of what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? We're going to get a glimpse this morning of what daily life ought to look like. And here's one big surprise, as we will see throughout this morning. Those who seem to be closest to heavenly living in Israel... The scribes and the Pharisees were not even close. The ones who seem to be the most right, the ones who seem to be the most righteous, the ones who seem to be closest to the Lord were not close at all. So let's read together our first section from Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for another opportunity to gather together as the people of God, to open up your word, to read and behold your truth and be transformed by your power. God, we pray that as we read and study that the work of your spirit might be evident among us that you would open up blind eyes, that you would unstop our ears, soften our hearts, transform us from the inside out, make us more and more into the image of Jesus. So Lord, help me to teach with clarity and with power that comes from you and you alone. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll see uh, three big ideas this morning. So if you're taking notes, the first one is this. From verses 17 through 20, we see that Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus is proclaiming right here in the passage that we just read that he has not come to abolish or to destroy the law or the prophets. And the law and the prophets is a common way in that time to talk about the Old Testament. 
If somebody was talking about the books Genesis through Malachi, they might say the law and the prophets. They might say the law, the prophets, and the writings. Or they might even just say the law. But when they say that, people knew what that meant. They're talking about the Hebrew scriptures. And apparently, there's somebody out there, maybe a false teacher, maybe a scribe, maybe a Pharisee, who is arguing, at least to some, that this new teacher, this Jesus, is denying parts of the law. He's trying to get rid of parts of the scriptures. Now, remember, this is a very basic fact, but something that we overlook all the time. Jesus was Jewish. (laughs) He was a Jew. He followed the law of Moses. He would honor the Torah. He would have followed all of the Mosaic law. He would have gone to the festivals. He would have observed the fasts and the feasts. He would have rested from his work on the Sabbath and more. But what Jesus says here is not that the law is going to be abolished. He's not out to destroy the law. He's not out to get rid of the law. Instead, the law will be accomplished. Look again at verse five, or chapter 5, verse 18. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. So he's saying the things that are going on in the world have no effect on what the law is. Heaven and earth will pass away before something in this law is changed until all is accomplished, right? So heaven and earth, not the thing that's going to change the law. The accomplishment of the law will change the law. In other words, the law is going to be fulfilled. And Jesus says, if you obey the law and teach the law, you'll be called great in the kingdom. But if you disobey the law and teach against the law, you will be least. What is Jesus getting at here? Well, as we'll see in just a bit, Jesus himself is the accomplisher. He is the fulfillment of the law. In fact, the law, the Old Testament writings, is preparing us for him. When when we read the Old Testament, when we read the Hebrew scriptures, if we're reading rightly, we will begin to put together this idea. Someone is coming who will make things right. Someone is coming from the line of Abraham who will bless all the nations. Someone is coming who will be a greater prophet than Moses, who will be able to speak God's words to God's people. Somebody is coming who's going to be a son of David, who will rule as king over all forever. Somebody's coming as a servant who will suffer and die for the sins of others. And God will exalt him and raise him up. Right? When we read the Old Testament, we will begin to put these pieces together and realize someone is coming. Someone is going to do all that this, these writings are pointing to. Jesus then becomes the lens through which you and I as Christians view the law now. We know who that person is, right? We know that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the promises and all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. This would have been a massive, massive statement. The Old Testament has as its goal and its subject, Jesus of Nazareth. And according to two scholars, D.A. Carson and Doug Moo, they say this, Jesus is not here announcing the termination of the Old Testament's relevance and authority. So he's not saying, don't worry about the Old Testament anymore. But he's announcing that the period during which men were related under its terms is ceasing with John. 
and the nature of its valid continuity, the way that it's going to keep going, is established only with reference to Jesus and his kingdom. Now, what they're saying is, when you and I as believers on this side of the cross, think about how should we interact with the law of the Old Testament, the way in which we interact with the law in the Old Testament is through Jesus. We don't read the law by itself as this standalone thing because it's not a standalone thing. The Old Testament is a sign. It's a shadow that points to and finds its substance in Jesus. So Jesus is able as the subject and goal of the Old Testament to rightly give you and me the spirit of the law and rightly bring the law's demands on us, which is why verse 20 hits all of us right between the eyes. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is this a huge problem? (laughs) Well, it's a huge problem because those on the hillside listening to Jesus teach, if you would have asked them two minutes before Jesus started talking, who are the most righteous people in your land? They would say, oh, that's easy. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. If, if you ask them, who, who understands the law? Who understands God's word? Who is obeying God's word the most rightly in the land? You say, oh, that's so easy. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom. You'll never enter. This provides a great problem that we will hopefully fix here in just a minute. So keep, keep hold of that. So that's the first thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's able to not just give us the words of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. And he's going to show us how the righteousness of the Pharisees is not godly righteousness at all. In fact, it's self-righteousness. So if you're taking notes, the second point this morning is this. Jesus gives us his law. Jesus gives us his law. Let's see how this works. Jesus says that the law points to him. And then he gives us six examples of rightly understanding both the letter and the spirit of the law. And what we're going to find out is this. The scribes and the Pharisees are convinced that if they can obey the letter of the law, they will earn right standing with God. If they can obey the letter of the law, if they can obey exactly what this word says, then they will earn righteousness with God. But here's the problem. In order to obey the word of this law, the Pharisees often are disobeying the spirit of the law. So let's just use some examples this morning in Jesus' teaching. Look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So this is Old Testament law. This is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, uh uh-oh. Well, it's easy for me to just not murder people. It's a lot harder to not be sinfully angry with them. It's a lot harder to not think that somebody's a fool. You see what Jesus is doing right here in this first section? These six smaller sections, what are called the antitheses of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus will start each section with, 
You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's starting off with the letter of the law, but he's giving us the spirit of the law that is nonetheless authoritative. Let's keep going. So if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, we can spend a lot of time on each one of these six antitheses, but what we're going to do is we're going to read them together and I'm going to give you the big idea of what's going on here. The, the letter of the law is murder. But the spirit of the law is sinful anger. It's one thing to not murder another person. It's another thing to control your anger. One of these things is actually much harder than the other. So if you're, I would encourage you just to write these, write these down. That This is murder. If you think about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, murder sinful anger, murder and sinful anger. And just notice here, Jesus is not only talking about your anger. He's talking about people who are angry with you. Look again. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, translation, if your brother is angry with you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Students, we have a responsibility when we sin and when we've been sinned against. We have a responsibility when we are angry with somebody and when somebody is angry with us to be, as Jesus taught last week in Matthew 5, peacemakers. We're called to go and make things right. It is not wise, good, or godly to stew in your anger, neither is it wise or loving to allow your brother or sister to stew in theirs. Now, you don't have control over your neighbor or your brother or your sister's heart, and you don't have control to to change their mind or to change their heart, but you do have a responsibility as much as it depends on you to live peaceably with all men. So murder, sinful anger. Next, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So if we're thinking about the letter of the law, the letter of the law is adultery. Having sexual relations outside of covenant marriage. But the spirit of the law is a lustful heart, a wandering mind. One of these things is much harder to do than the other. And Jesus is asking you and me in very graphic, stark terms, what are you willing to do to be holy? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, is Jesus 
saying that you and I should mangle our bodies. No. Let's just be clear here. This is, this is Jesus making a point. Are you committed to radical steps to maintain and to fight for holiness? I had a professor one time who was talking to his students about lust. And he said, let's say your cell phone is the issue that brings you back and back and back and back to temptation. Get rid of your phone. Get rid of your phone. Like humans lived for thousands of years without iPhones. Like it won't kill you. But unrepentant sin will. And so the question that Jesus is putting in our mind is, do we realize that what we're doing as we fall into regular, habitual, unrepentant sin is way more dangerous, way more inconvenient than having the internet all the time? A question for you to consider for sure. Third, it was also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the letter of the law is divorce. The letter of the law is divorce. But the spirit of the law is faithfulness. Faithfulness. There are things in Scripture here, uh, sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul talks about abandonment. These are allowable reasons for divorce. But God hates divorce. The, the Scriptures are clear. And while divorce may not always be sin in and of itself, Jesus right here makes a caveat for it. Divorce is always the result of sin. You, you, you hear that? Divorce is not always sin, but divorce is always the result of sin. And so Jesus is saying, are you able to fill, fulfill the letter of the law as it relates to divorce? That's one thing. But are you able to be radically faithful to the covenant commitments that you've made in light of the radical obedience that God makes to keep his covenant? Because we've broken our covenant over and over and over, and God does not leave us. Next, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So, the letter of the law, keep your oaths. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for is it, it, it's, is it, it is its footstool, man, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So the letter of the law is oaths, but the spirit of the law is integrity. And here's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying, if you have to make an oath for someone to really believe what you're saying, then that probably means that what you normally and regularly say is not trustworthy. Like if you are habitually dishonest, and you say, man, I really want somebody to believe me, but I know I'm dishonest. I should say, I swear, I swear, I put it on my mom, right? That's what they said. When I was in like junior high school, it was always like, I put that on my mama's grave. Like, your mom's still alive. Like, that's not even a thing you can swear by. Anyway, when you make these kinds of oaths, Jesus is saying, 
The implication is your word is not true. It's one thing to keep an oath. It's another thing to always have integrity, to always be honest, to always speak the truth. And one of these things is much harder than the other. Number five, verse 38. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So the letter of the law is justice. If someone does something wrong, they should pay for it. If somebody does me wrong, they should be brought to justice. Retribution should happen. Punishment should happen. But instead, Jesus says the spirit of the law is mercy. The letter of the law is justice, but the spirit is mercy. It's one thing to uphold the law so that righteousness and justice always bears itself out, especially when it's convenient for you. It is another thing to show mercy to those who never deserve it. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no spine. And this doesn't mean that we just allow ourselves to be sinned against and taken advantage of over and over. So hear me. This this command from Jesus is not a burden for you to bear if you are being sinned against. If you're being sinned against, you have authorities that you might appeal to. But Jesus and God's word is clear. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. And this is This is teaching to individuals. This is teaching to Christians. This is teaching to followers of Jesus. Notice, this is not teaching to a government. This is not teaching to a state. Romans 13 is still in the Bible that God has given the state the authority of the sword. So when you're being sinned against, vengeance is not for you, but you have someone to turn to. But we give mercy because we've been given mercy instead of justice. All right, last one. 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let me pause right here. All throughout this section, Jesus has been quoting the Old Testament and giving an expansion of a, a spiritual exposition of the letter of the law. But remember, unless your righteousness seeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things that self-righteous people like to do is they like to add things. So you can search your Old Testament all you want, but the only thing you will find quoted from verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5 is, you shall love your neighbor. The Old Testament never says to hate your enemy. And so Jesus is very cleverly saying, you've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because, well, this is the law of the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, think about the parable of the Samaritan 
the, the, the rabbi and the Levite. And the, these folks are, are not loving their enemy. The, the, the person on the side of the road was not someone worthy of their love. They hated the Samaritans. They were considered the enemy. And so it was good and right for them to say, if they're my enemy, I must hate them. I'm called to love my neighbor. It's why the lawyer seeking to entrap Jesus says, well, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? Obviously not my enemies because I hate them. We'll get to the parable one day. Maybe not this year. Keep going. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here's another key. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the letter of the law, loving your neighbors. Spirit of the law, loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. Now, let's just be really clear here. Loving your enemies is not a really joyfully clever self-righteous method to actually get what you want, which is the destruction of your enemies. You hear me? Loving your enemies is not a, well, I'm going to do this because I read in the Bible somewhere that it's going to put burning coals on my enemy's head. So if I just am nice to this person, they'll actually get what I want. That's not loving your enemies. Loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is to seek their best, is to seek their good, is to sacrifice for, from yourself for their sake. It's to show grace. Because while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us by dying for us. We were his enemies, and he loved us. Not so that we would get what we deserve, but so that we would get what we don't deserve. And through that, we were changed from enemies to sons and daughters. We were, we were moved from traitors to citizens. And what Jesus is saying here is by fulfilling the spirit of the law, if you love your enemies, if you really love your enemies, it may be by God's grace, they won't be your enemies for long. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So how do we do this? How do we do this? I mean, I feel like we're right where we were last week with the Beatitudes. This seems like a heavy, heavy burden to bear. It seems like there's no way we could do these things. Uh, Doug O'Donnell in his commentary says it really simply. He just says, I know these verses are a bit tricky, but not as tricky as you might think. The basic message of verses 20 through 48 is, don't act like the scribes and Pharisees. Act like God. <laughs> well, here's the problem. <laughs> We're not God. <laughs> 
and we have sin in our hearts. And, and while, while O'Donnell is totally right, and his point is that we look to Jesus and we look to the Lord to give us strength for these things, he actually says it in a way that if we're not careful, will lead us straight into despair. Because I am much closer to the scribes and the Pharisees than I am to God. So what do we do? Third point for, tonight, for today. We obey his law by faith. By faith. Look again at the two bookend verses for this section. In verse 20, it says that our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And in verse 48, perfection like the Father is required. How do we respond to these impossible commands? The Pharisees sought to obey the letter of the law with perfection. Right? This is how they answered this. They wanted to obey all of the letters of the law, and they showed themselves to be elite in their knowledge and in their devotion, but it revealed a heart that was cold. Their righteousness was a self-righteousness, which means it is a dead righteousness. The spirit of the law, as Jesus lays out for us here, exposes their rank disobedience to God. They were, like everyone else, spiritually bankrupt. And this revelation leads, to, leads us to what the church has historically called the first use of the law. So you may want to write this down. There are three uses of the law. The second one has to do with government, so we're not really going to be worried about that. But the, the first use of the law is using the law like a mirror. When we look at the law, just like when we look at a mirror, we see who we really are. So, so when I look at the law, it exposes me. It reveals me. It reveals the things in my heart. It reveals the things in my mind. It reveals the things in my life that do not honor God. Maybe another way to say this, and you may have heard me say this before, that the law is like an x-ray machine. It's able to see things that we can't see on our own and reveal them to us. But an x-ray machine doesn't create new things, right? That broken arm has always been broken today. We're just now seeing it under the x-ray. So do you need surgery? Do you need your bones to be reset? Well, let's look at the x-ray and see what's going on. The scribes and the Pharisees, however, were convinced that the law is what, actually would, is what would actually fix their broken souls. They knew that they weren't right with God, but they thought, if I would just obey the letter of the law, just obey the letter of the law, just obey the letter of the law, then my heart will be fixed. If I just work hard enough, my sins would be removed and my salvation would be secure. But that's like blasting your broken arm with an x-ray machine and believing that that's what's going to be what fixes it. That's not the purpose of an x-ray machine. An x-ray machine doesn't heal, it reveals. Listen to Matt Smethurst use a similar illustration. This is awesome. He said, imagine you had some dirt on your face, but you didn't know it. And so your friend says, hey, go look in the mirror. And so you go, and now it's the mirror's job to clean your face no, of course not. It's to expose your face and send you to the shower. Likewise, the law is a mirror that reveals sin. Its purpose, Smethurst says, isn't to clean us, but to send us to the only one who can. The mirror of the law was designed to drive us 
to the shower of the gospel. Students, this law, these commands drives you and me to the gospel. We're driven to Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. That's the first use of the law, to expose our need for Jesus and to bring us right to him. But there's a third use of the law. Remember, the second is about government, so we'll skip it for now. The third use of the law is for Christians, those who have been given the Holy Spirit. When we study the law through the lens of Christ, remember we're looking back at the Old Testament through Jesus, we can actually obey God's word because we have his spirit. The law of Christ, right? The law through Christ is the arena where we will find blessing as believers. Don't miss that. The law of Christ is the arena where we will find blessing as believers. Do you want to be blessed by God? How do we do that? Obey his commands. It's not that easy, but it is that simple. How do I receive the blessing of God? I obey his word. I do what he says. If Jesus really is my Lord, then it means I'll obey his commands. Now, we end not in Matthew 5, but in 1 John chapter 5. So flip really quickly with me over to 1 John chapter 5. First and 2 Peter, if you got to Revelation, you went too far. 1 John chapter 5. As we think about receiving God's blessing and living in light of the gospel that that brings us out of death into life. And we remember that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law. He accomplished all of the things that he's saying, but not merely for his own sake, but for yours and for mine as well. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Listen to this. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Students, the the commands of God are not burdensome. They are gifts. They're gifts because they reveal to you your great need for grace. And they are gifts after you have received God's grace so that you might continue to receive his blessing. John is telling us exactly the same thing that Jesus is telling us. If we love God, we will obey his commandments. Actually, the way that we show God that we love him is by listening to and obeying his word. And we know this intuitively, right? Like if if your parents told you to do things and you never did them, like you never obeyed your parents, you never honored their authority, you never did what their household requires of you, and you say, I love you, Man, I hate all these rules and I hate all these things that you tell me to do and I hate all these ways that you're making me live my life. I love you. Something is very wrong. 
in that story. Because if I love this authority, and remember Jesus is teaching as one who has authority. If I love that authority, I will seek to follow his words and obey his commands. Because I realize that they're not burdens, they're gifts. They're not for my frustration. They're not for my heartache. They're for my joy. So when I run from anger and from lust, and when I run towards faithfulness and integrity and loving my enemies, I'll find joy. You're not going to find joy running into those things. You're going to find heartache and you're going to find destruction and you're going to find death. But if you run towards Christ, away from those things and towards him, you will find joy. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, we confess and believe that your words are good, that your words are true, that your words are authoritative. And Lord, you have given us the command to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Now, Lord, we know blatantly, plainly, that in and of ourselves, we can never obey these commands. The law has been given to reveal that we need something greater than the law. So God, we thank you for the law. It is a good word for us, but it reveals our great need. And so God, today, as your church, as your people, we thank you all the more for meeting that great need in the person and work of Jesus, the one who lived a life fully obedient to the law, the one who died as a substitute for our disobedience to the law, and the one who was raised from the grave and offers life and love and mercy and joy to all those who recognize their poor spirits and their need for you. So God, I pray that you might use this morning to remind us of your great goodness and grace, to remind us of the goodness of your commands. They are not burdens, they are gifts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.